Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series through the life of Joseph uh, in the second part of the book of Genesis, looking at the life of Joseph. And if you're just joining us, uh, you're jumping in kind of midstream to the story, let me give you the, the big picture overview, including getting you caught up in this chapter that we're looking at today in chapter 41. It's a very long chapter, so we're not going to read the whole thing. But we've seen Joseph, uh, one of the younger sons of a large family, beloved son of his, of his parents, betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, whisked off to Egypt, where he lived as a slave in Potiphar's house, the slave of a high-ranking, wealthy man. We've seen his, uh, Potiphar's wife attempt to seduce Joseph. We looked at temptation last week and how that works in our lives. We saw him unjustly accused and sent to prison, where he waited for two years. Altogether, it's been 13 years since young Joseph at 17 was sold by his brothers into slavery. And now, 13 years later, uh, in Genesis 41, we see Joseph finally remembered. Remember last week we said that he made two friends in prison, one of whom was the cupbearer to the king who forgot about Joseph for two years. And then finally, Pharaoh, the most powerful man in Egypt and one of the most powerful men in the whole world, himself had two dreams that he couldn't interpret. And all of a sudden, one of Joseph's uh, friends from prison says, oh, I remember a guy who's good with dreams. I got a dream guy. And so you should, uh, we should bring Joseph out of prison. Joseph comes and he stands in front of Pharaoh, in front of the most powerful man in the world. And Pharaoh tells him about these two dreams that he's had. In one of Pharaoh's dreams, seven healthy, good-looking cows get eaten up by seven skinny, ugly cows. It's a terrifying dream. Um, in another dream, seven healthy and vibrant ears of corn come and get uh, chewed up by seven weak and dying ears of corn. And Joseph says to Pharaoh, he says, here's what your dream means. It's talking about the same thing. Egypt is going to have seven years of incredible prosperity, great crops. It was an agrarian society, so as the crops went, so went people's livelihoods. He says there's going to be seven years of incredible crops, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. And so if I were you, what I would do is store up the grain on those seven years, try to ration it from the seven good years, store it up in barns and appoint men over each of those barns in the cities. That way when the famine comes, we can distribute the grain to any who have need. And Pharaoh's impressed with this plan, impressed with Joseph's a clear kind of supernatural ability to interpret dreams and impressed with his wisdom at how to administer uh, this coming crisis. And so he elevates Joseph to the second highest position in all the land. And that's where our story picks up today. And so if you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word? The reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 41, beginning at verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, 
I have set you over all the lands of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in the garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. And thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath-Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. And during the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Aseneth, the daughter of Potipharah's priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands. But in the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and is given to us in love. Thank you. You can be seated. This incredible story uh, is ultimately about identity. Uh, it's about who Joseph is, and it's about his calling in the world, that God's going to use this, this man so afflicted, who suffered so much, ultimately to bless the entire world. Right For a couple of weeks now, we've seen literally uh, Joseph getting stripped of his identity. Right? Remember the, the first week, his father had given him this beautiful robe, and his brothers stripped it off of him and dipped it in animal blood to prove to their, bro- to prove to their dad that Joseph had been killed. Joseph is stripped of his identity. Then we saw uh, Potiphar's wife strip Joseph further of his cloak 
and use the cloak and say, this is evidence that Joseph tried to rape me. We've seen Joseph stripped of his identity again and again, torn down. And now in this passage, we see the man who'd been stripped of so much, clothed with the highest and most luxurious robes that the world has to offer, given the signet ring of Pharaoh, dressed in the finest of linen. This man whose identity had been stripped from him, God is now beginning to build back up, to build back up his dignity, to stir in him the idea that he's ultimately not going to be defined. His story is not ultimately about what he suffers. It's not ultimately about his sin or temptation. That ultimately, in the face of all of that, God can still use him in an incredible way to bless the world. And for many of us, that's a question that we really, really wrestle with. We know our own suffering. We know the ways that we've wept and hurt in this life. And we can be tempted to build our entire identities around it. We know our own sins and failings. We know that we've, the ways that we've sinned against God, the ways that we've hurt some of those closest to us, and we wonder if there's any hope for us. You know, sometimes it's, it's hard enough to hope that God would even forgive us, let alone use us in any significant way in his world. And so we see in this, in this chapter these themes of identity being woven back together. We see it in the way that Joseph is redressed, and we see it in the namings that go on here, names in the Bible, and still today, have incredible uh, power to convey meaning, especially in the scriptures. Names are never given uh, simply because the parents think the name sounds cool, right? Names are given uh, because it reflects something about God's plan, something about God's destiny for the people involved. And three times in this chapter, we see significant namings. We see Joseph receive a new name from Pharaoh. And then we see his, Joseph himself rename or name his children. Even in our, world's, uh, our world, names carry meaning. One of my favorite uh, pictures of this is, is George Foreman, the great uh, heavyweight boxer and purveyor of tabletop grills. Um, when George Foreman, who himself uh, grew up in a broken home and an impoverished home, George Foreman himself now has 12 children of his own, and he has five sons. And he named each one of his five children George Foreman. There's George Foreman Jr., there's George Foreman III, there's George Foreman IV, and there's George Foreman V. He's named all of his children George Foreman. Now, that must be an incredibly confusing home in some ways. Um, but when asked about it, he said the reason he did it was he never knew his father. And he always wanted his children to know who their father was. That naming is, is an opportunity to say, no, my life and the life of my children isn't defined by the sin and struggles of my past, but that there is a new identity and a new hope. Think of the names that Joseph has born in this story already. Joseph, his given name, means Yahweh adds, God adds. It's the name that a loving father gave to this, his youngest 11th born child that God has added to his family, Joseph would go on to become his father's favorite, his father's beloved. Right, this name, Joseph, Yahweh adds, Yahweh blesses, becomes for him probably a name of a little bit of bitterness, right? Because it's his father's doting, it's his father's privileging of Joseph that ultimately stirred his brother's jealousy. Joseph's also been called brother, a name that should convey loyalty and safety and love. But in Joseph's life, it, it came to symbolize betrayal. 
right? It came, to, it came to symbolize, let's take this brother, let's throw him into a pit, and let's sell him into slavery. The name brother got twisted in Joseph's life. Then Joseph was called slave. He was called by Potiphar's wife, Hebrew slave, a name that stripped him of his dignity and of his worth and of his freedom. And then Joseph would be called convict, right, prisoner, another name stripping him of his, of his dignity, of his, of his innocence. Joseph had been called all of these different names before he ever got to this point where he gets called Potiphar's right-hand man. The names that we're called have a power to shape us. You know, I think we all can look at our lives and think back. Uh, if we were just to walk through our lives from childhood and think of the names that we've been called, I think each one of us has received names uh, that cut us uh, to the heart and wound us. Right? It's, it's hard to escape a week of middle school by itself. <laughs> right, without getting called a name. They might be said in jest. It might be said as a joke, or more likely it's, it's said to wound. They can sting us, right? We've been called names that speak to our capabilities in life. We've been called stupid. We've been called weak. We've been called loser, right? Maybe you've been called names that speak to your guilt, right? Names that speak to your morality. Maybe you've been called names that speak to your race. have been called names that were meant to degrade and tear down. Right? We all receive these names uh, that the enemy of our souls would use to degrade us. And one of the truths of the gospel, one of the beauties of the gospel, is that Jesus gives us a new name. Right? We see it in Revelation, that the people of God receive a new name, known only to God and to them. I think that's a picture of God giving us a new identity, no longer defined by our suffering and our hurts, no longer defined by our sin and our struggle but defined by his grace, shaped by his grace. And so we're going to look at these three names that play a pivotal role in this chapter and kind of use those to help us tell the story. The first name we're going to look at is Joseph's name that he gives to his first son, Ephraim. Uh, no, I'm sorry. The first name we're going to look at is the name that he gives to his first son, Manasseh, which he says means God has made me forget. Manasseh sounds like the Hebrew word for, for forget. God has made me forget all of my hardship in that of my father's house. Right? God has made me forget. Right? Think of all that Joseph has gone through. All that he's gone through from the, the pit of prison and slavery to the height of power. And he says that in all this, God was with him. Remember, that's what the narrator has said over and over. Yahweh, the Lord was with Joseph. And he says, now God, you have made me forget all of my hardships. You've made me forget all of my suffering. Now, this isn't forget uh, as in I've just forgotten that it's all happened. I'm pretending that it's going to go away. No, this is him saying that in the light of God's blessing, in the light of God's presence, in the light of his grace, in the light of what he's done for me, all of those sufferings seem to pale in comparison. It's like they, they drift away from my view because God and his goodness towards me has made me forget them. Right? All of us would like to forget certain parts of our story. Right? All of us would like to edit out uh, the most painful parts of our lives. Some of us go to great lengths to either pretend that they didn't happen and we live in denial. Others of us have tried to numb the pain of what we've suffered, have tried to forget through addiction. Right? And ultimately, we as human beings can't ultimately purge out or edit out the hard parts of our lives. Right? It comes back to us. Right? There have been all kinds of stories and, and, and studies done 
Then when we stuff the painful parts of our lives and we, we turn a blind eye to our negative emotions, those things creep back up in our lives, sometimes affecting our health or our mental well-being. Right? That we, are, we in and of ourselves can't just pretend our way towards pretending those things didn't happen or forgetting our sins or our struggles. It takes something other than that. It takes a power beyond us to help us to forget. You know, this is uh, ultimately, ultimately we're only ever able to forget our sins, to forget uh, the pain of our past when we remember uh, God himself who tells us one of the great promises of the gospel in Jeremiah 31 is that God will remember their weaknesses, uh, remember their wickedness no more and he will choose to no longer remember his people's sin. Right? This is the God of the universe, the, um, the omnipotent and omniscient God, the God who knows everything, the God who knows every corner of our lives, everything we've ever done. In Christ, chooses to forget. He chooses to, when he looks at us, to no longer think of our sin, to no longer think of our unrighteousness, but instead to think only of Christ's life for us, instead to, to, to think only of us pure and forgiven in Christ. Right? Some of us have, have a struggle with defining ourselves by what we've suffered, defining ourselves by our struggle. We think of ourselves only as victims of what others have done to us, or we think of ourselves only as guilty and in perpetual need of trying to earn our way back into the favor of those around us or into the favor of God. But in Joseph's story, he says, God, you've made me forget. God, you've forgotten the worst about me. You've forgotten in your grace my sin. You've no longer defined me by it. And so I can now forget. I can forget my sin and no longer define myself by it. One of my favorite true stories uh, is the story of Louis Zamperini. Some of you know uh, the story of Louis. He was uh, one of these heroes of the greatest generation. He was a, uh, the star of the, uh, or not the star, the subject of his biography. It was called Unbroken, and then they made a movie out of it. And Zamperini's story is just incredible. He was a, a long-distance runner in the Berlin Olympics. So he was there at the Olympics with Jesse Owens in the, in, in, under Nazi Germany uh, when the American team went out there and kind of ran for the purpose of showing up Hitler and his regimes. He was there, there at the outbreak of World War II at the Berlin Olympics. He then enlisted in the Army and was a pilot in the Pacific Theater. He, his plane crashed. He survived at sea in a raft for what at time was the, the longest any human being had ever survived by themselves on the ocean. He was attacked by sharks. He was attacked by the Japanese. It's, just, it's a crazy story. Uh, then he was rescued, but it was by the Japanese where he lived the rest of the war in a prison camp where he was constantly tormented and tortured uh, by the Japanese. He had one of these stories kind of like Joseph's, right? When you read Joseph's story, it's, it, you just go kind of one thing after another. Oh, no, first he was betrayed, and then he was, a, then he was a slave, and then he was falsely accused. And it's like, can it get any worse? And that's kind of the way Louis' life was. It was just these incredible events, but all of them shared in common that Louis was kind of on the, the short end of the stick. He was suffering through all of it. And then he gets rescued at the end of the war, and he comes back home to California. And the bitterness that he felt over all that he'd suffered started to get the best of him. He remarried, but he, or he got married and he had children, but he also became an alcoholic. He started abusing alcohol in an effort to forget 
all that he had gone through. He began to harbor this, this, these fantasies of revenge, of going back to Japan and hunting down his captors and, and killing them. So Louis got to a really, really dark place. And then uh, Louis's wife, sensing that they were at the end of their rope as a couple, uh, heard about a young evangelist named Billy Graham uh, that was coming to California. And she said, basically, Louis, I don't know what he's talking about, but you need to go and you need to hear it uh, because we're, we're not going to make it if something doesn't change. And this is the way that Laura Hillebrand, his biographer, tells the story. Looking back, when Louis thought of his history, what resonated with him now, that's in current day, was not all that he had suffered, but the divine love that he believed had intervened to save him. He was not the worthless, broken, forsaken man that his captor had striven to make him. In a single, silent moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation and helplessness had fallen away. That morning, he believed he was a new creation. Louis got freedom uh, from his past through being born again as a new creation in Christ. Do you know that freedom? Are you one of the people who carries around their past like a burden, who carries around their guilt or their suffering as, as, as something that just defines you and weighs you down? Well, Paul tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. He's made new. He's given new life. Not just a better version of the same old you, but a new you remade by the grace of God and by the power of his spirit. Do you know that new life in Christ? If you don't, if you don't, there's no better time to begin it. And there's no simpler way than just reaching out to Christ in faith and saying, I don't want to be defined by my story. I want to be defined by your story, by your goodness and your grace and your love for me. Now, if you do know that story, if you are one of those people uh, who've called on Christ as their rescuer, who've tasted new life in him, listen, you no longer have to be defined by your past. You no longer have to be defined by your guilt or your suffering or your sin. Right? It is not theologically accurate for you to go around carrying that. It's not in keeping with what God says is true of you any longer. That when he looks at you, he sees the perfect life of his son Jesus. He sees a life uh, so precious to him that he bought it by his blood. He sees a heart remade by his spirit that can live a new life. You are a new creation. The old is past and the new has come. Like Joseph, God can help you to forget all that you've suffered. And then he names his second son, Ephraim. Ephraim in Hebrew means twice fruitful. And Joseph defines it this way. He says, you have made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. You have made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. You see, God's forgiveness in our lives, God's grace in our lives, is always so that we can be fruitful. Right? It's never just that we're such, we've made such a mess of things that God can forgive us and then we kind of eke our way into his kingdom. No, God forgives us. God shows his grace to us so that, so that our lives can matter. Right? How incredible is that? How incredible is it that we who are God's enemies, God not only just barely forgives, but he forgives and then says, you know what, I'm going to have a purpose for your life. 
Through your life, I'm going to work to bless this world. Through my grace to you, I'm going to show my grace through you to the people that you're in relationship with, to your city, and to the whole world. Right? Think of that, that God was with Joseph. And we see Joseph, even in his suffering, bearing fruit in these incredible ways. Right? Even when he was a slave, he became the one who managed his whole, every bit of his master's house because he was so honest and wise and faithful. Even when he, you put him in prison, and shortly thereafter, he becomes the one who runs the prison. Right? The warden's sitting off drinking coffee and taking long breaks because he knew that Joseph could be counted on to kind of keep everyone in line and make sure it was well-ordered. Right now he comes before Pharaoh. And this incredible fruitfulness that he had in his life comes to affect not just Pharaoh's house, not just Egypt, but the entire world. That God uses Joseph to literally save the world. And in this, we see what's always been God's plan for his people, right? God's plan for his people, as small and as suffering as they were, God's plan for them had always been through them to bless the entire world. When he called Abraham to leave his father's house, to leave everything he'd ever known and follow him by faith, this is what God promised Abraham. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed through this little family, through this little family that was Abraham's family that grew into a small nation. God's plan was always not simply to bless them, but through them to bless the world. And one of the things that's fascinating about this chapter is that the language of the covenant, the language of the special relationship that God had with Abraham, starts to get uh, used of the entire world. Right? God said that he would make Abraham's descendants as numerous as sand on the seashore. And here he says that the grain that Joseph stored up was as numerous as the sand on the seashore. At the very end of the chapter... It says that all the earth came to Egypt and to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. The whole world is getting the blessings of God's special covenant with his people in this passage. Now, some of these people, think of yourself. Think if you're one of the, one of the Egyptians or even one of the, those in a neighboring country that heard there's grain in Egypt and you come there. Maybe some of the people knew the story, right? Maybe some of them heard that there was this Hebrew that in the power of his God, Yahweh, had interpreted the dreams and come up with this plan. Maybe some, some of these people found faith in the midst of this, in the true God. But there were plenty. There were maybe even thousands, probably most of them, that it was simply they heard there was grain in Egypt, and they went and they got the grain in Egypt, and then they thanked whatever Egyptian God they gave credit for it. Or they went back to their home country and gave credit to whatever their gods were. There were tons of people who partook of this incredible blessing who never knew. Who never knew that it was God who did it. Who never knew that it was God's uh, favored covenant partner, Joseph, who did it. Who never gave credit where credit was due. They simply reaped the blessing of God's king on God's throne using God's wisdom to give the blessings. You know, the Christian church over thousands of years, has always viewed Joseph 
is a type of Christ. That means they've looked at Joseph as someone whose life story shows us something of what the life story of Jesus was like. Right, Just as Joseph went down to the pit of slavery, was stripped of his identity, went down to the pit of prison, and then rose again to the height of power, was given royal robes and administered a kingdom in which he brought life and blessing to all people, so Jesus went to the depths, you know, in his, in his incarnation began to be stripped of his divine privilege, went all the way to the cross and to the grave before rising again to new life, ascending into heaven, seated at the right hand of God, by which he rules all things in this world, distributing his blessing both to his people and to the entire world. Right, this takes incredible faith to think that in our world, broken as it is, that Jesus ascended, sits on the throne, and rules over all things. And that some of our neighbors enjoy those good things at Jesus' hand, whether it be the smile that they enjoy in their children and his laughter, whether it be the, the, the thrill of a job well done and the satisfaction at the end of the day, whether it be loving relationships, whether it be a good education, whether it be a safe neighborhood. There's plenty of people who enjoy the benefits. Christ, uh, the Bible tells us that every good thing we enjoy, every good thing we enjoy comes from the hand of our God. And that King Jesus in heaven distributes blessings both to his people and to those who don't name him yet. That Jesus cares about our neighbors. Jesus cares for the common good of our communities. And that as his people, as his people, we should come uh, to care about what he cares about. Right? Joseph didn't stuff a tract in every bag of grain he gave out. Right? No, he, he did it as a sign. A sign of the coming king. A sign of the God who loves the whole world and wants simply to bless. Wants simply to feed. Right now we know. We know that when Christ comes, he says what? He says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. The bread of God comes to feed the whole world. Right, that ultimately, every man, woman, and child in the world needs to know the bread, needs to know the grace of God in Christ. But God has given us, like God gave Joseph, vocations in this world, callings in this world, which go beyond simply being evangelists. It also includes using every bit of our calling, every bit of wisdom and talent and gift that he's given us to bless our neighbors, to seek the common good, of our city and of our nation and of our world. Right, Joseph was a gifted man. We see it. He had these kind of supernatural seeming abilities to interpret dreams. But he also was wise. He had the ability to, to administer things. He had the ability to order things. And God put Joseph in a position to use these gifts for the good of others. And he does the same for us. You know, when you think about your vocation, when you think about your calling, it's that special place that God's given you to leverage your life and your gifts for the glory of God and for the good of your neighbors. For the glory of God and for the good of your neighbors. Now, it may not always feel that way, right? If you're, if you're showing, a lot of us show up on Monday mornings to a job that's like, man, this is, this is rough. I don't like my boss. I don't feel particularly fulfilled in my work. It's hard. I feel like my work is thankless and people don't notice me. I feel like my work uh, is largely, you know, unnoticed by the world. And yet God tells us that each of our gifts, each of our vocations, 
have a hand in bringing him glory and bringing good to our neighbors. Right? Joseph probably could see this when he was the second in command of all of Egypt. Right? When he was the prime minister of Egypt, he probably felt pretty good about it. Like, yeah, God's using my gifts to feed the entire world. But there were other times when he was just a servant in Potiphar's house, when he was uh, just a supervisor in a prison, where it probably didn't feel that way, where it probably felt like he was showing up for something that felt like drudgery. And yet he had a vision that even his small tasks could be used for God's glory and for the good of his neighbors, for the good of his community. And that's the, same, the, the truth for all of us. Some of us may have more under our charge, right? There's folks in this, in this congregation who have incredible amounts of influence and power, who you can look at your life and see a one-to-one correlation between the decisions you make and the things that you do in the health of others. Maybe you're a doctor or a nurse. The way that people, uh, the people's homes are developed, maybe you're in real estate. The way that people appreciate the world around them, maybe you're in the arts or design. And there's others of us who, frankly, day-to-day don't see it. Maybe we're painting the houses that that real estate guy just sold. Right? Maybe we're cleaning up the room after the surgeon got done with it. Right? Maybe we're uh, driving a car to make deliveries, and we never see the enjoyment on the face of the people who get what we bring. But God wants us, even in tasks that are seemingly thankless, to do it not for our own gain, not just to earn money for ourselves, but for God's glory and our neighbor's good. One of my favorite examples in this light is an old... Uh, lived in the 16th century, a man that's become known to history as Brother Lawrence. Uh, Brother Lawrence was a, a peasant who, living in Western Europe who left his life uh, to go live in a monastery. Now, he wasn't a monk himself. Uh, he went to serve the monks. So when you think of a monk as a man of prayer and devotion, and or I don't know how you think of a monk, but that's certainly how they were thought of at the time. Brother Lawrence went in simply as a servant. He, he spent most of his life in the kitchen washing dishes, peeling potatoes, uh, serving the monks. And he wrote a little book. It's actually a, um, he didn't write it. It's a, it's a series of his letters and then the conversations that he had with people called The Practice of the Presence of God. Because what Brother Lawrence came to know is that his, his most intimate time with God, his most intimate communion with God, came not when he was doing the prayer services with the monks, but when he was washing dishes and peeling potatoes. It became his his ability to use the everyday sense of his vocation to experience God's presence. Here's one of the things uh, that one of the biographers writes of Lawrence. He says, in his business in the kitchen, to which he had naturally a great aversion. Who wants to work in a kitchen all day, every day? Which is he had a naturally great aversion, having accustomed himself to do everything there for the love of God and with prayer, upon all occasions for his grace to do his work well. He found everything easy during the 15 years that he had been employed there. See what he's saying? He had a vision of how his life in the kitchen, his life where God had placed him, could be used for God's glory, could be used in intimacy with God and for the good of those he served. So Joseph names his secondborn Ephraim. God has made me fruitful. And then interestingly, the third name uh, that we're going to look at briefly is this name that Pharaoh gives to Joseph. So the first two names are Hebrew names that Joseph gives to his sons. Ways of saying in Hebrew, even in the midst of Egypt, I haven't lost my identity. I haven't lost my sense of being a part of the covenant family. 
And then Pharaoh gives him an Egyptian name, Zaphonath Paniah, which in Egyptian means God speaks and acts. God speaks and God acts. I mean, just imagine, this is stunning, that Pharaoh, uh, a man who spoke Egyptian, who presided over the most powerful nation of the world, a man whose gods were the gods of Egypt, looked at Joseph, and after saying that I see the spirit of God on him, I see the favor of God in his life, said, I've got a new name for you. God speaks and God acts. Right? Pharaoh wasn't one of those who just reaped the benefits of Joseph's calling and never knew where it came from. He saw the fruit of Joseph's labor. He saw his vocation, his calling, his wisdom. He saw all of that, God's grace in his life. And he said, surely your God speaks and he acts. Right? The purpose of our lives, the purpose of our vocations is that we might say to the world, God speaks and God acts. Do you know how many of your neighbors, how many of us in a secular age are, are wrestling with those very two questions? Does God speak? Can God be known in any kind of real way? And does God act? Does God care about us? Does God intervene in this world? And here's Joseph through his life saying God speaks and God acts. God speaks and acts. Dan Allender, a Christian psychologist and counselor, says this, Our story is meant to reveal the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Our story, yours and mine, is meant to reveal to the world around us the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. To answer the question, does God speak and does he act? How does it do that? Right? How does our life reveal the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus? When we admit honestly the pain and brokenness of our lives, when we admit honestly our sin and don't try to cover it over, that points to the death of Jesus. It points uh, to a world so broken that it took the very life of the Son of God to redeem it. A sinner so black-hearted that it took the power of the Spirit to bring you back to new life. It speaks to the death of Jesus. When you celebrate the grace of God in your life, when you experience him, when you trust in him, it reveals to the world the power of Jesus' resurrection, that there is hope and that there is life. And in his ascension, that where he sits enthroned, uh, ministering his grace and his wisdom to the world, when we enter into our callings, when we enter into this broken world to labor for its good and for God's glory, we reveal that we believe in the ascended Jesus. We said earlier that Joseph's life has always been looked at as a type of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension. So our lives are to be looked at by all of our neighbors as a type and as a sign that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that he reigns over all things as king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, so often it's hard to believe that our lives are a sign of anything except for our own mess, um, our own foolishness, our own sin. Lord, help us to have faith uh, to reimagine our life in this world as a sign uh, to the world of your death, uh, your, your resurrection, and your ascension. Lord, help us to believe that we too can be defined not by our sin and our suffering, 
not by uh, the names that we've been named by the enemy, but that we, uh, too, can be used as Joseph was for the good of the world and for the glory of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.